Hello friends, Chris Matthew with Forbidden Knowledge News here with a special announcement. We are starting production on the Forbidden Documentary. That's right, we're breaking out the camera, lights, microphone, and hitting the road. This is going to be much bigger than your average conspiracy doc. It's going to be a conspiracy docu-series. And we're going to take all of you on the road with Forbidden Knowledge News, as well as all your favorite guests that have appeared over the years, authors, researchers, scientists, whistleblowers, contactees, fellow broadcasters, and some of you listening as well. The topics will include paranormal, ufology, historical conspiracies, hidden ancient history, current conspiracies, spirituality, cryptids, and much, much more. We're going to visit sacred and spiritual sites and places of high, high strangeness, and hopefully visit with as many of you along the way as possible. This project is currently completely self-funded, and we're asking for your help. We are going to jump into this head first, and hopefully the universe and maybe some of our amazing audience will help a bit. If you'd like to get involved with the production, email me, ForbiddenKnowledgeNews at gmail.com. And if you would like to help by leaving a donation, we have a Buy Me a Coffee or PayPal option. You can go to supportfkn.com or click that PayPal link in the description. Any amount is greatly appreciated and will help tremendously. And if you make a donation through supportfkn.com, you're going to also get access to select chapters from Corey Hughes' upcoming book about the JFK assassination. Be a part of an epic journey of discovery and truth with the Forbidden Documentary. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Corey Hughes. First, a couple of announcements. Forbidden Knowledge News, always available on Rockfin, Minds, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Check us out on Rockfin. That's where you get our premium content and all the free and premium content from every creator on Rockfin. Just go to rockfin.com slash FKN+. Check out our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News, also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You find amazing podcasts from our community there. All those links are in the description, as well as Support FKN. That is if you'd like to help out with production of Corey's new book or the new documentary we've got going on. You're going to get fantastic information that's going into Corey's new book. Today, I want to welcome back to the show Corey Hughes. He is a researcher, historian, and host of Understanding Propaganda, co-host of Day Zero. Corey, welcome back. How you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Yes, man. Last time we looked at the strange world of Oswalds and layers and layers of spycraft and compartmentalized CIA apps, what are we going to get into today? All right. So Oliver Stone has a new documentary out called Through the Looking Glass, JFK Revisited, and it does present some good information, uh, none of it too deep, you know, he barely scratches the surface. However, Oliver Stone is a propagandist. He uh, put out the JFK movie back in 1992, the JFK film, ultimately uh, bankrolled by a guy named Arnon Milchan. Arnon Milchan is acknowledged to be a known Mossad agent who was working in America. Uh, he was first uh, responsible for, uh, in the 60s and 70s, for smuggling nuclear triggers out of the country and acquiring parts for the Demona nuclear reactor in the Negev desert. And ultimately, he uh, I guess he got reassigned to Hollywood, where he went on to bankroll a whole bunch of propaganda films. Uh, JFK uh, is no different. JFK was a propaganda film that got people spinning off in a bunch of different directions, and it diverted all attention away from the people who were really responsible for the assassination. 
So what we're going to do today is we're going to play a couple clips uh, from Oliver Stone's new film. And I'm going to go into detail on how he is propagandizing people with this film. And I'm going to go into the things that he uh, conveniently left out of his film, which basically, uh, you know, I can't think of any other reason why he would leave this stuff out other than to maintain parts of the official narrative. Uh, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to basically, I'm going to demonstrate how Oliver Stone is a propagandist using some of his own clips. And I'm going to present information to show exactly uh, what he left out, uh, which is really the most important stuff. Sweet. So um, the first while you're pulling that up, I want to remind everybody in the audience, if you have any questions, pop those in the chat, and we'll get to those as soon as possible. Okay. This first clip involves uh, Dr. Humes. Dr. Humes was one of the autopsy physicians at Bethesda in Maryland. So here we go. And listen carefully to these clips, because the information they present will be relevant to the counter-information that I then present. Let's talk about those two wounds, Captain. Yes, sir. Now, you examined this whole area of the back. Yes, sir. So on the night of the autopsy, Humes and Boswell said, hey, we've got a bullet hole in the president's back, which they <clears throat> examined with a finger, then with an instrument, then took x-rays, then took out the lungs, and no bullets. In a murder case, that is a very serious problem for them. So where did that bullet go? And well, just like I say, a work of fiction. A call came in from the FBI in Dallas. A bullet was found. Daryl Tomlinson, a maintenance man at Parkland Hospital, trying to get to the men's room, passing by the ER, found the stretchers blocking the way, bent down, moved the stretcher, and there was a bullet. How did that bullet get there? Humes and Boswell came up with this totally absurd conclusion that when the president lay on the stretcher, supine position, and pressure was applied to his chest for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. That pressure applied anteriorly, forced a bullet, which had gone deeply into the tissues, back out through, like a tunnel, in and out, a car in reverse. And what's very important to note is, bullets don't go in and out like that. The bullet becomes encased, but that was their conclusion. Okay, so <clears throat> the problem with uh, this part of the documentary and with everybody's understanding of Kennedy's wounds is that Kennedy was shot at least twice in the back. This photograph here on the left shows Kennedy's jacket. This is a commission exhibit 393 and FBI exhibit C29. This is in the Warren report. And as you can clearly see, there are two bullet holes in the back of Kennedy's jacket. Okay, there's one about six inches down uh, just to the right of his vertebrae, and there's one up by the neck. Now, some people will say that this was because the jacket was folded over, but that's not possible. If the jacket was folded over, we would have three visible holes. So once again, Oliver Stone here is leaving out key information, uh, which would basically completely throw the official story out the window. But since he doesn't present it, this is slam dunk evidence. He was shot from behind twice. Uh, this is not mentioned anywhere else in any other books or uh, documentaries. Um, but this is the proof right here that he was shot twice in the back. You can clearly see two bullet holes as indicated by the red dots. So uh, let me move on to the next clip. The next clip is a little longer. It's about three minutes long, and it continues to talk about the magic bullet. Now you said, so, wait, hold on. You said that the, their argument is that it was folded over. How could it have been folded over if he was sitting up in in the back of the uh the vehicle like that right well when you look at the uh when you look at some of the video and photographs of kennedy uh before he gets shot you can see that the back of the jacket is sticking up in the air right you can see that there looks like there is some jacket uh, so being pushed up like he sat on it and it went up on the on the side of the, the back of the chair there right right exactly but that's not the case if that was folded over at the time that he was hit you would have three holes and this the hole at the bottom here uh it is too far down to have been part of the fold if there was one and so the shot up here this this, this the second red dot up at the top is right next to another bullet hole uh and nobody's ever addressed this uh or it tried to explain it so why would oliver stone yeah why would oliver stone try to ignore this why would he not include this in his documentary unless he was really you know trying to maintain the original story of uh of the magic bullet it just doesn't make any sense i mean 
it, it, it really has to make you scratch your head. Man, there's a lot of noodle scratchers in this one. And everything, oh, yes. really, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the next video clip I'm going to play is about three minutes long, and it continues on the theme of the magic bullet and the guys who found the magic bullet and the chain of custody. CE-399 was the magic bullet, and all government investigations so far have treated that bullet as absolutely foundational to this case. How important is chain of custody in a legal proceeding? Chain of custody basically refers to the integrity of evidence. If I uh, pick up a piece of evidence and I transfer it to somebody else for holding or processing, my name is the first name on this list. The second person who touches this and takes possession of it is next. And if you don't do that, there's no way to prove that the evidence you collected on day one is the same one you get on day 25 when you go to court. Can you walk us through the magic bullets chain of custody from the Parkland employees to the Secret Service, to the FBI. Well, the magic bullet was supposedly found on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital and went through several hands uh, before it got to the Secret Service. Richard Johnson was the first Secret Service agent to handle it, and he carried it back to Washington, D.C. When he got back to Washington, D.C., he gave it to the chief of the Secret Service, who was James Rowley. And at the White House, uh, James Rowley uh, gave it to Elmer Lee Todd, and Todd then took it to the FBI lab and gave it to Robert Frazier. At 7.30 at night, this is the day of the assassination, November 22, 1963, a bullet appears in the record, and it's signed for by Robert Frazier, who is the main investigator at the FBI lab. And it's not just one document. There are multiple documents that indicate that Fraser signed for a bullet at 7.30 that night. Now, here's where things get interesting. Elmer Lee Todd received the bullet at the White House from Chief of the Secret Service, James Rowley. And Todd documents very clearly in writing that he got this bullet at 8.50 p.m. How is that possible? How can Robert Fraser receive the bullet in the lab at 7.30 from Elmer Lee Todd when Todd didn't get the bullet until 8.50? You would think that they would have handled it, uh, you know, like it would have been gold going to the bank. There it is in the record. Someone is lying about when they got the bullet. It gets worse, though. Todd initialed that bullet, the one that he got at uh, 8.50. And everyone else who touched the bullet after that initialed it too, including Robert Fraser. I went to the archives to look at this bullet. And specifically, what we want to know is, do we see Todd's initials on this bullet? He said he, he initialed the bullet. It is not there. Todd's initials are not on the magic bullet. I was very interested in finding out what the review board would show us about this. So we began scouring their evidence and we found out something very interesting. We found out that the Warren report had from an FBI a report saying that the guys that found the bullet later identified that as the bullet they'd seen. The internal record didn't show that at all. The internal record said this bullet didn't look like that bullet at all. But the FBI had reported the Warren Commission that it did. It lied. We then talked to the FBI agent that was supposed to have carried that bullet around. His name was Bardwell Odom. I got Bardwell Odom on the phone. I sent him the documents that said that he had done this. He said, I never had that bullet. I never showed any bullet to anyone. If I'd had the bullet, there'd be a 302. I would have filed a report, particularly in that era. Everybody was very uptight about getting everything right. So we scoured for 302 reports. His name appears nowhere in the record. This is just something that the FBI invented. It's conceivable that some mysterious bullet showed up from who knows where. Todd did not initial it, and it ended up in the FBI lab as a magic bullet. One can only surmise that somewhere in the FBI, they realized they had to close the loop on Oswald's guilt, and so they just switched it out. Because none of the four people, either the guys at Parkland or the two Secret Service agents, could identify the bullet the guy who is supposed to have gotten confirmation that they did identify the bullet said he never did it, and the record supports that. So there's there's good reason to be very suspicious about the magic bullet. 
Okay, so this is the magic bullet. It's <laughs> not really so magic when you understand the real story behind it. But as usual, Oliver Stone leaves out some of the key things, which I know that he's aware of because he mentions in that documentary the two guys who found it, O.P. Wright and Daryl Tomlinson. Those are the two guys who worked at the hospital who found the magic bullet. Um, I just caught something as we were watching that clip. Um, they showed a document that they showed the first couple lines from, and then they skipped to the bottom couple lines and they left out the middle section. That middle section basically shows that the bullet was not found on Connolly's stretcher. It wasn't found on JFK's stretcher. It was found on a random stretcher in the hospital basement, um, which Stone, if he had that document and he presented the document in his documentary, why didn't he mention that middle section, right? Once again, Big questions about why Oliver Stone is leaving things out of his documentary. So when you go to the real story of the magic bullet, what you'll find is um, Daryl Tomlinson is the guy who found the bullet. Uh, he moved a stretcher and the bullet came out and he turns it over to Mr. O.P. Wright, who was a uh, personnel director. All right. So both of these guys are approached by the FBI years later. Uh, to in 1967, they're approached by the FBI, they're shown pictures of the magic bullet, and they want them to confirm that that's the bullet they found on the stretcher. Well, neither man would confirm that that's the bullet. Both men described the bullet as having been a pointed tip, uh, a pointed tip bullet as shown in this picture here. Uh, this kind of bullet comes from an Enfield 303. It is a 303 round, 30 caliber. And that becomes extremely important uh, because later on, they go to Buell Frazier's house to arrest him. And when they arrest him, they find an Enfield 303 rifle and 303 ammunition. Okay. I believe they were setting Buell Frazier up as a second patsy. So Oliver Stone conveniently left this out uh, and he mentioned the people by name, but he doesn't mention this is from Josiah Thompson's book, Six Seconds in Dallas. And this is in the public record, right? This is out there. And uh, I just don't buy for a second that none of Oliver Stone's uh, dozen or so uh, researchers on the film actually could find it. So this is uh, more evidence that Oliver Stone is not presenting to you the whole story. Well, I mean, and, I always wonder why would they just let him and blab about all this stuff? Just, you know, let him allow him to make these movies uh, in our mainstream Hollywood culture. It doesn't make sense that they'd let him just come out with this information if indeed this conspiracy is what we think it is, you know? Uh, absolutely. And so uh, to me, it's kind of like uh, Alex Jones, right? So Alex Jones puts out all kinds of really good uh, information, right? The information Alex Jones puts out is solid for the most part. And I think how it works is uh, they are allowed to put out anything they want as long as they deflect from who was really behind this, right? Alex Jones will get you spinning in circles. Um, you know, he'll put out good information, but then who does he blame? It's always the globalists, right? He never, ever goes deeper than that. And I think that's the whole point. And that is how controlled opposition works. They'll give you the real information up front, but then when it comes down to it, they will spin you off to make sure you never reach the conclusions of who is really behind all this stuff. All right. Now, man, didn't uh, they make a, a, a little vibrator called the magic bullet? <laughs> yeah, like I think they did. I think Kennedy would be proud of that, right? <laughs> so here's a fascinating um, document. This is a letter to Mr. Clyde Tolson, who is uh, J. Edgar Hoover's boyfriend. And at the time, he was the number two guy in the FBI, right? So this is fascinating. It says, I talked to SAC Shanklin in Dallas. He uh, said arrangements have been made with Carswell Air Force Base to fly one of our agents to Washington with the rifle that was recovered by the police together with the fragments of the bullet taken from Governor Conley and the cartridge cases. I told SAC Shanklin that Secret Service had one of the bullets that struck President Kennedy and the other is lodged behind the president's ear. And we are making arrangements to get both of these. Okay, so there was another bullet lodged behind the president's ear that was removed at Parkland. Okay, so this is just more evidence. This is this this document is in the public record. It's not hard to find. I don't know why uh, Stone wouldn't include this in his film either. Um, this pretty much is slam dunk that there were way more bullets uh, than the official story says um oh here it is i actually have that document that i was mentioning 
where he shows the top and then he shows the bottom, but he uh, kind of skipped over the middle and it says the attached expended bullet was received by me five minutes prior to Mrs. Kennedy's departure from the hospital. It was found on one of the stretchers located in the emergency ward of the hospital. Also on this same stretcher was a rubber glove, a stethoscope and other doctor paraphernalia. It could not be determined who had used this stretcher, or if President Kennedy had occupied it, no further information was obtained, okay? So he left this entire second, uh, this, this last couple sentences of that paragraph were basically omitted, or else why would he jump from the top to the bottom of this document? It makes no sense to me other than he's hiding information and only propagandists hide information. So yeah, the story of the magic bullet is like the biggest lie ever told to the American people. That bullet didn't hit anything. Um, there are witnesses who said that they saw Oswald uh, shooting at uh, big bales of hay up in Fort Worth. There was a, a big patch of grass that people would go and shoot uh, guns in. And witnesses say that they saw Oswald there, but Oswald never owned that rifle. The whole story of the rifle, I'm not going to go into today, but he never ordered the rifle, nor uh, was it delivered to his P.O. box or any of that stuff. It was completely part of the setup. So... Uh, but I believe that it was Carrie Thornley who was actually impersonating Oswald in Fort Worth and around Oak Cliff, who was seen firing uh, the, the Carcano rifle at these big bales of hay. And honestly, that's probably where the bullet came from. Uh, so. Stephanie in the chat says Stone was a Yale boy whose family had connections and couldn't wait to go off to war. That's a good point. Yale, that's... Um, that's the that's uh, the, the bush is that sc the skull and bones yeah is that skull and bones yeah oh yeah i yeah. was thinking of yeah. like a there's one called like ink and quill or something like pen yeah, yeah. and quill or something <laughs> yeah, right a, that one's from from princeton societies yeah so yeah as usual oliver stone here leaving out some of the most important information uh, it's just utter, utterly ridiculous you know another fascinating thing about the magic bullet is that besides that pointed tip bullet that was found they also found a second bullet at parkland hospital that had not been fired it, this one makes no sense. Um, it was fully jacketed. And uh, O.P. Wright gave it to his, he tried to give it to the Secret Service. Nobody wanted it. FBI, they didn't want it. So after he died, his wife then reapproached the FBI, turned that bullet over to them. And then that's where the story ends. It disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, but why they would plant another bullet that's fully jacketed, I still can't figure out. Jack Valente planted the magic bullet. I mean, it's obvious to me because... Uh, uh, Jack Valente shoots Kennedy from the knoll. He escapes in the Secret Service car. And where does the Secret Service car go? It goes right to Parkland. And uh, part of his story that he kind of stuck to over the years uh, was that he went down into the basement of Parkland Hospital, where he was then found by Clifton Carter, who was one of LBJ's men, and then they left to go to the airport, right? So Jack Valente planted the magic bullet. He admits being in the basement when he shouldn't have been in the basement. Uh, so, yeah, to me, these are all different pieces of a puzzle that all fit together. Man, if they made a, a true movie about Jack Valente and his life, that would be like a that'd be a banger right there. I'd love to see that movie. Oh, yes, That dude yes. seems interesting. As, even though he's probably evil as fuck, you know, it seems very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, the problem is I know for fact that there is a huge cache of documents on Valente under his aliases um, that is not attributed to Jack Valente, just the various aliases. Um, I'm pretty sure he used the, the CIA code name of uh, Rosani or possibly Rosanoff uh, because he has some dealings with a guy named QJ Wynn, QJ Wynn, really Jean-Pierre Lafitte. And uh, both Jack Valente and Jean-Pierre Lafitte use the alias of Pierre. So I have a document indicating that there's interaction between Valente. I'm, I, I, I'm assuming, I need to do more research on it, but I'm assuming between Valente and QJ Wynn. Um, and the introduction was made by Santos Traficante, the mob boss in Tampa, because ultimately the Valente family, uh, their mob background falls under um, Traficante in Tampa, which goes back to one of Valente's relatives named Andrea Valente, who was a participant in the assassination of Mayor Anton Cermak in Miami in 1933. So yeah, so there's a whole lot more to Valente than anyone's ever led to believe. And if I can crack his aliases that in, in the CIA, then I should be able to uncover that whole cache of documents. And then maybe we can make that movie on Valente. Of course, we're going to get sued out of existence, but hey, it'll be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. all right, well, let's move on to the next clip. The next clip is uh, this one. Well, let me play the clip and then I'll comment. Legally speaking, 
the autopsy should have been done in Dallas. And there was a forensic pathologist, Earl Rose. He was there to assume jurisdiction and to do the autopsy. He was pushed up against the wall and threatened. Hands on guns, a lot of expletives and so on. He followed them out the driveway and they took the body illegally out of Dallas in violation of the laws in the state of Texas. After Air Force One left Dallas for Washington, two of the key doctors who had tried to save Kennedy's life at Parkland Hospital held a press conference. They were Dr. Malcolm Perry and Dr. Kemp Clark. What were the two major points of evidence revealed by Kemp Clark and Malcolm Perry at the press conference? Dr. Perry performed the tracheotomy to help Kennedy breathe. And at a press conference, right after the failed resuscitation efforts in Dallas, he was asked, he said, well, where was the bullet? And he said, the bullet looked like it was coming at him. He had an entrance wound in the throat. Kemp Clark was the head of neurosurgery at Parkland. He said that the president had a gaping wound in the occipital parietal area. That's, you know, the right rear of the head. And so the description he gave of that was entirely consistent with an exit wound. We have a transcript today of what they said at the press conference. So it's White House transcript 1327C. That's a very important historical document because the Secret Service confiscated the videotapes from the local TV stations. There is, however, a surviving clip of Dr. Perry recorded not long after the press conference. Arriving at the emergency room, uh, Dr. Perry placed the tube in the president's trachea to assist his breathing. But there was a neck wound anteriorly and a large wound of his head in the right posterior area. Okay, so uh, Oliver Stone once again leaves out, and this is a very well-known piece of information. Uh, this has never really been disputed by anyone. The conversation when talked about this piece of bone uh, here is, it just kind of doesn't go anywhere, but this is a piece of occipital bone. Now, an occipital bone is the part of the back of your head to the right of your spine that has that's got a little lump, right? That little lower right-hand piece of your skull in the back. This is known as the Harper fragment. Uh, the Harper fragment was recovered in Dealey Plaza, so we see that Kennedy gets, he's obviously shot from the grassy knoll. He goes back into the left, just as he should if he got sh shot in the head. And there is, all of the motorcycle cops got basically sprayed with blood and brain tissue who were behind him. That would not happen from a bullet from the front, right? But this piece flew off of the car, and then a, a guy named Harper picked it up and turned it over to the FBI uh, or Secret Service, whoever, whoever he uh, who was in Dealey Plaza at that time. So basically, uh, the Harper fragment came from right there. It's a piece of occipital bone, uh, which uh, would probably only be, it's probably the largest piece that shot out because the other pieces were probably small and just got, you know, shot everywhere. They're probably stuck on some of the cop's clothing and this and that. But yeah, that's the, uh, that <coughs> is the Harper fragment. And uh, there is no possibility that he was shot from the front if the back of your head is getting blown off. But this is well known. This is even in some of the propaganda films. Like, this is not, uh, nobody has to dig too deep to find out about the Harper fragment. And so why this was left out, this would make his case, right? Oliver Stone could make his case that Kennedy was shot from the front just by talking about the Harper fragment, but he doesn't mention it once. It's mind-boggling. Um is that Whoopi Goldberg narrating that shit? Yes, it is. Holy it shit. Sure is. I thought so. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. I thought that voice was a little recognizable. Yeah. I, I don't know how she got that gig. It's, that's funny. <laughs> yes. But, um, man, she especially does, the, she does the shit a... she's going through lately. Uh, oh, yeah. Those connections yeah. there. Those connections. That happened about the time that this came out. So she probably recorded this first. She's probably way more uh, aware of things than people let on. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't even know. Did she get, did she get fired from uh, The View or is she still there? Uh, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> I don't participate in that dimension. Oh, I, I completely agree with you there. So, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this is a piece of occipital bones. It's, this is the piece of bone that would go where all the doctors said he had a piece missing from the back right there. Okay. That's it. And <laughs> this is in the archives. You can go to the archives and look at it. Uh, so yeah. Why Oliver Stone would leave this out of his film. Who knows? Uh, the only answer is because he's still trying to make, he still wants this to be a mystery, right? Because if this is no longer a mystery, then you can't make any more fucking money on it, right? Like all of these pieces of shit, JFK researchers who don't know what the fuck they're doing, they 
if, if, the, if this thing gets solved, which it has been, um, then there goes their uh, their pile of money, right? So it's uh, it's no wonder that they kind of uh, veer people away from this stuff. But it's it's just insulting to people who actually know what is actually going on with the assassination. I mean, he was shot from the front. He was shot from the grassy knoll by Jack Valente, who was using an Enfield 303 rifle. And then Valente goes over the top of the knoll. They do the cars, they do the you know flip-flop thing with the with the Secret Service car and with the president's limo. Uh, and then uh, a picture of him is seen as he's fleeing Dealey Plaza on the side of the Secret Service car. Uh, why there's only been two people on the planet to figure that out, I really don't understand. Yeah, I highly so. recommend everyone go back and watch those uh, couple of previous episodes we did uh, that were kind of a prelude to this one. There's a lot of information in there that uh, kind of leads to this information, so go check those out. Yes, so so that's the Harper fragment. Why he left it out, who knows? And uh, the next clip we're going to play has to do with Marion Baker and Roy Truly and their encounter with Oswald uh, in the book depository. So allegedly he shoots the president, hides the rifle, runs down to the first floor, right? All within like 90 seconds. And then he's seen um, drinking a Coke in the lunchroom, okay? The lunchroom story is completely false. It never happened. It's a fraud. They made it up out of thin air. Why they made it up, I still don't know because it hurts the case that Oswald was the shooter. Uh, and the real story could help make the case for them, even though it wouldn't be accurate. Uh, it would still, as far as propaganda goes, be a better explanation than seeing him in the uh, second floor lunchroom. So let me play this clip and then I'll explain what really happened. Hey, Edgar Hoover on 2192. Yes, I, I've seen the uh, reports on this investigation. This man, Oswald, he had fired three shots. He then threw the gun aside and uh, he, he apparently uh, had come down uh, the five flights of steps uh, stairway from the fifth floor. Now we're walking you, you can prove that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we can prove that. Did anybody hear anybody saying it? Most of the employees were down on the lower floor, but uh, he was stopped at the second floor by a police officer and some uh, worked some manager in the building told the police officer, well, he's all right, he works safe, he, he didn't hold him. So they let him go. That's how he got out. Time that I heard those shots, ran into that building and made it up to the second floor, it was approximately a minute and a half to two minutes. And possibly less than two minutes, investigators came to the school book building with stopwatches and critical eyes. Not only police and government agents traced that route, Chief Justice Warren and some other commission members did it for themselves. Okay. But man, so, they got that creepy, like, you know, uh, mystery music behind it. It's got to be true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing how music in a movie really can have more of an impact on you than what you're seeing on the screen. It's I was just, sold just really... by the music, man. I, I don't care. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the lunchroom on the second floor. There's the Coke machine. Um, so we have conflicting statements from Baker. Uh, one said that he was standing there drinking a Coke. Another statement he made said that he was seated uh, drinking the Coke. But when he when the when he came into the room, he pointed his gun at him and he hopped up from his chair. So Baker gave conflicting stories on what uh, what he did because none of it happened. And I'll, I'll I'll explain how none of it happened. Let me hop to this. This is uh, his affidavit, right? Um, this is the affidavit of Marion Baker, and it says here, I it says, um, a man stepped forward and stated he was the building manager and that he would show me where the stairs were. That's Roy Truly. I followed the man to the rear of the building, and he said, let's take the elevator. The elevator was hung several floors up, so we used the stairs instead. As we reached the third or fourth floor... I saw a man walking away from the stairway. I called to the man. He turned around and came back towards me. The manager said, I know that man. He works here. I then turned the man loose and went up to the top floor. Uh, the man I saw was a white man, approximately 30 years old, five foot nine, 165, with dark hair, wearing a light brown jacket. Okay. So in his own statement and in his notes, he says that he was between the third and fourth floor. When you go to uh, Curry, 
or this is Fritz. Uh, when you go to Fritz, who was the, the, the one of the bosses there at the police department, uh, it says here, uh, we also found that this man had been stopped by Officer Baker while coming down the stairs. Mr. Baker says he stopped this man on the third or fourth floor on the stairway, but Mr. Truly identified him as one of the employees and he was released. Okay. Um, then uh, when he gives his testimony, this is great because this to me, this this is some of the best proof that it wasn't Oswald because when you look at what Oswald was wearing, Oswald, when he's arrested, is wearing a white shirt and a dark brown, like a, a like a flannel over it, but it's, it's all dark brown, right? Uh, but here, this is what Baker says. He says, uh, at that particular time, I was looking at his face. It seemed to me like he had a light brown jacket on and maybe some kind of white looking shirt, all right? So it wasn't Oswald for sure, uh, because this man had a light brown jacket on. Now, in my opinion, this whole, this whole story, I don't know why they concocted this story, because the reality is that uh, Baker did not enter the building until a minimum of 1237. The official story says that he had run in, like he, like he said in the video, between 90 seconds and two minutes, runs in, and he bumps into the man on the second floor. So he was obviously coached in what to say afterwards, right? Um, but that could not have happened then, because you have a guy named Robert McNeil, who was a reporter who was inside the book depository on the ground floor, and he made a phone call from there at 1236 to his news desk in New York. And he said that no police had entered the building prior uh, well, prior to him being there, right? He said nobody was in there until he left. He didn't see any cops in the building, all right? So the reason that I think that uh, the story was put off, really, I think that this incident happened closer to 1237 or 1238. Um, and the reason for that is because of this. This is the Willis 10 photo. This happened almost immediately after um, the assassination. This is within three or four minutes. So Baker, when you watch the video, there's actually a video of Baker getting off his motorcycle and running towards the, uh, the doorway at the Texas School Book Depository, but he doesn't stop there. He continues to run all the way to Houston Street. All right. So he runs all the way to Houston Street. And within a minute or two after that, this person here is arrested. This is a man dressed all in black and he's being arrested by the Dallas Police Department. Now, I believe that this man getting arrested is Emilio Santana. He was the shooter at the Daltex building. He was standing on the fire escape. There's like a little ledge to get you on the fire escape. He was standing on that ledge. All right. So what I think happened was Emilio Santana shoots the president from the Daltex. And at within 10 or 20 seconds of the shooting, he makes his way down off the ledge and he runs north on Houston Street. Then when you watch the video of Baker, Baker runs clear past the doorway to the book depository to Houston Street, I believe, because he saw this man. Right. Um, I believe that he catches him. Uh, some other cops are there. They bring him back here. They arrest him. There's a rifle in the background. You see that? I believe that rifle is a Mauser 7.65 because there were three Mausers who were delivered to David Ferry from a, a mobster named Frank Sheeran. Uh, and so one of them went to Lawrence Howard, who fired from the sniper's nest. And then the other two, I believe, went to Sergio Arcata Smith and Emilio Santana, who were kind of partners in this thing uh, to a degree. They had both come up uh, from Miami. They stopped off in New Orleans with a woman named Rose Sheremy. They ended up kicking her out of the car. And then they head up to Dallas. And so, yeah, uh, so I don't believe Baker ran in 90 seconds or even two minutes after. I believe it had to have been at least uh, after Robert McNeil places him in the building, which is at the earliest 1236, but more likely 1237. Uh, the best part about that um, is that it, that completely coincides. Let me see if I have this picture here with this photograph here. OK, so uh, the, this guy here in the light brown jacket, notice he has a light brown jacket. He has a receding hairline. And that is not the jacket that was found um, prior to uh, Oswald shooting or after Oswald shot Tippett, right? The jacket on the left is a jacket that was abandoned uh, after Oswald allegedly shoots J.D. Tippett. But if you look at this one here, it's uh, definitely a light brown jacket. And there's a guy there who matches the description that was given by Baker, probably 5'9", 165 pounds, white guy with darker hair and a light brown jacket. All right. That is most certainly William Seymour. My theory on... Oswald, even having worked at the book depository, is that he didn't, and that William Seymour uh, was actually the one who was in the building on that day who everyone in the building knew as Oswald. When you read the 
statements of people who worked in the book depository. Half the people in that building had never seen Oswald ever until they saw him on television. And that includes Ovi Campbell, who was the boss of the book depository. He had never seen Oswald, right? Who he had probably met was William Seymour, right? Uh, who was using the name Oswald because he had used the name Oswald elsewhere. William Seymour was responsible for the incident at Sylvia Odio's house. Uh, three men show up to Sylvia Odio. Sylvia Odio is a, a Cuban living in Dallas. Her parents were in jail because they were anti-Castro Cubans and they were in jail in Cuba at the time. Uh, and I determined that that trio was William Seymour, Lauren Hall, and Lawrence Howard. And on the day of the assassination, I believe it was William Seymour in the building who people had identified as Oswald. And most people who were even working in that building, none of them had even seen Oswald at work that day. And when they say they didn't see Oswald, they're comparing it to the man that they saw on television, right? So you got to think it's the 1960s. Um, you are introduced to a guy and they give him a name, right? And then you see a guy on TV later on who kind of vaguely looks like him, but has that name, your brain is going to make the connection to, oh, that must be the guy, right? So what I believe happened is uh, William Seymour is on the ground floor. He's watching the elevators. After the assassination, Lawrence Howard comes down and he runs out the back door. Lawrence Howard gets stopped by, uh, by Dallas police and he is photographed and then he is cut loose. And then here you see this man in the trench coat in the background. That's Detective Trantham from the sheriff's office. He was certainly in on this. He was standing watch behind the book depository when the assassination happened. As soon as it happens, he runs back into the railroad yards. Um, let me see if I can show something here. No, I don't have it in this picture. But at the same time, there are people getting arrested in the background in the actual original video that I clipped this from. And I place this scene right here at being around 1233. What happens then is uh, William Seymour goes back into the book depository because he's comfortable there, because he worked there as Oswald, right? So he's supposed to be there. So he then takes the elevator back up to the sixth floor, begins his descent down the stairs, and that is when uh, Truly and Baker run into him between the third and the fourth floor, okay? There is no mention in any of these reports about the second floor Coke story because it never happened. Never, ever happened. So I don't understand for a second why um, Oliver Stone would not uh, put this in there. This, there's multiple documents, even in Baker's original notes, it said he was stopped between the third and the fourth floor. And so why Oliver Stone left this out, obviously, because he's a propagandist. But yeah, the, everything that happened in the book depository was a staged event. Um, you know, the textbook industry is run by the CIA. The book depository, all the guys in charge were CIA. They've been OSS during World War II. And so... You know, to me, the, what really happened makes perfect sense, whereas the story that they provide doesn't make any sense at all. But yeah, nobody was stopped in the second floor lunchroom story with a coat. Total myth. Never happened. Uh, apparently, uh, I think uh, Mr. Stone doesn't like what we're talking about. The uh, YouTube chat is telling me that we got kicked off of there multiple times. Uh, and I, I've seen the viewers drop by like 10, 20, 30 at a time. So uh, good oh, job. I'll just keep recording. Yeah, good job. They don't like what you're talking about. <laughs> then you know it's a good job, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this next video here. Um, oh, okay. So another thing about Oswald allegedly fleeing down the stairwell. So he's supposed to shoot the president. He then hides the rifle and then he continues down all six flights of stairs, right? Uh, but allegedly there was another woman named Vicki Adams, Victoria Adams, who was supposedly on the stairs at the exact same time that Oswald was. So um, let's read her statement here. She has always been used as like the proof that Oswald couldn't be coming down the stairs because she was on the stairs, right? So if she's on the stairs and she doesn't see him, he couldn't have been on the stairs at that time. Well, forget about the fact that the whole 90 second or two minutes after the assassination, the Baker story, forget about that for a second. The person who was stopped by Baker didn't happen until 1237. So Oswald would never have been coming down these stairs. And it was actually William Seymour anyway, not Oswald. So, but he left out the most important thing about this incident. And the most important thing about this incident has nothing to do with Oswald whatsoever. So it says down here, um, after the third shot, following, that, following the third shot, I went to the back of the building, down the back stairs. And this is the key. This is so important. I can't, I can't emphasize how important this is. She says, and I encountered Bill Shelley, who was the, uh, the, the manager of the book depository, right? Third, third in line 
after Roy Truly and Ovi Campbell, but he was in charge of the employees. She's seeing characters Bill Shelley and Billy Lovelady on the first floor as she's making her way out the back door. Okay. This is crucial. She gives that statement to everyone, the Dallas police, the FBI, the Secret Service. Here's another statement where she says the exact same thing. She comes down the stairs. She gets to the first floor and uh, she runs into Billy Lovelady and Billy Shelley. All right. Um, That is super duper important because that would indicate that Billy Shelley was by the electric panel as she was coming down the stairs. So she comes out of this door right here, right? And she's going to exit to the right to go out the out, out the, the loading dock. But she sees Billy Shelley right here. So why is this important? This is important because at 12.29 p.m., the power to the elevators in the building goes out, right? Somebody killed the power to the building at 12.29. Why would they kill the power? Because they had the elevators planted on the fifth floor and the sixth floor, and they could not risk uh, the shooters not being able to get out of the building. So he kills the power. So the elevators are locked at the fifth and sixth floor. So nobody can just happen to go up and push the button. Thank God he did because um, Victoria Adams, when she, before she goes down the stairs, she tries the elevator first. The elevator wasn't working. So she runs down the stairs. So thank God Billy Shelley had killed the power because that gave the assassins on the fifth floor and the, or on the sixth floor, one of them escaped through the fifth floor, but I'm not going to get into that today, but they needed those elevators on the fifth and sixth floor so that the shooters could escape from the building. Now, when she sees Billy Shelley after the assassination, probably within 30 to 45 seconds or maybe a minute tops after the shooting happens, Billy Shelley runs back in and he flips the power back onto the building. Okay. So the series of events is Bill Shelley kills the power to the building. The assassination happens. Vicki Adams runs down the stairs because she couldn't catch the elevator. As she gets here, she sees William Shelley and Billy Lovelady. And well, if you notice this document, it says top secret, right? This thing was banned. This thing didn't come out until like the eighties. This statement did not come out until like the 1980s. And whenever something disappears for 20, 30 years, you know it has something significant in it. And in nowhere in any book or any video or any documentary does it ever mention that Bill Shelley and Bill Lovelady were there. So um, he runs back in. He turns the power back onto the building. She's already run out the back door. All right. It's at this time that the assassins on the fifth and the sixth floor, there were no shooters on the fifth floor. The fifth floor assassin uh, was actually on the roof and he just escaped down the fire escape into the fifth floor and took the elevator. And they did that because they couldn't wait for him to get off the roof into the sixth floor and then take the elevator. So they left the fifth floor elevator there for him. So he could go down the fire escape to the fifth floor inside the building. And then he ends up coming down the elevator, Sergio Arcacha Smith uh, with a guy named Jack Doherty, who was CIA, who obviously he worked in the book depository. So um, this is Sergio Arcacha Smith. He was uh, also Uh, As he comes out of the elevator, he runs out the back door and boom, he is stopped by Dallas police or Dallas sheriff. And we know this because the picture on the left was photographed of him as he was in custody. He couldn't have been in custody that long. Uh, The story goes that he yelled something in Spanish and they cut him loose because he didn't speak English. Does that make sense? No, not at all. But that's Lawrence Howard on the left. This is a clear picture of Lawrence Howard on the right. Uh, And I love this picture on the left. This picture is super, super hard to find. I've only ever found it in two sources. One, some bullshit website that happened to have it, but it's also in a book um, that I have. uh, I forget what it's called, but it was by Penn Jones from way back in the day, like the 19, late 1960s or early 70s. So yeah, we have a picture of one of the guys fleeing out the back of the building. It is clearly Lawrence Howard, the guy on the right. Okay, so all of this is left out of stone's film uh when you go and you look at the statements of william shelley they never he never mentions being on the first floor ever read the statements of billy lovelady it's definitely never mentions being on the first floor either uh and so it was not oswald who was in the alton's photo you know people argue over whether or not oswald was in the doorway right um so oswald was not in the doorway in that picture it was clearly billy lovelady and here's another thing this whole incident was clearly covered up this is from this is from Warren Commission testimony. And so this, I'm going to read this because it's really important. Uh, Mr. Bellin, you are looking now at a first floor planner diagram of the Texas School Book Depository, and you've pointed to a position where you encountered Bill Lovelady and Mr. Bill Shelley. 
That's correct. It would be slightly east of the front e of the east elevator and probably as far south uh, as the length of the elevator. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And he says, I have a document here called Commission's Exhibit 496, which includes a diagram of the first floor. There is a number seven and a circle on it. And I have pointed to a place marked number seven on the diagram. Is that correct? And she says that is approximate. And Mr. Bellin says, between the time you got off the stairs and the commission and the time you got to this point, when you say you encountered them, which was somewhat to the south and a little bit to the east of the front elevator, did you see any other employees there? And she says, no, sir. He called this document that he had uh, Commission's Exhibit 496. So I went to pull Commission's Exhibit 496. And guess what? It's not the diagram. It's Oswald's uh, application to the school book depository is now 496. But Oswald's uh, application is also duplicated in the exhibits under a different commission number. So whenever you see Oswald's application referred to, it's referred to as the other exhibit number. When commission document 496 was the diagram indicating that Bill Shelley and Bill Lovelady were on the first floor. That document disappeared off the face of the earth. It doesn't exist anymore. But you can tell there was a cover up because the commission's exhibit 496 is now Oswald's application, not the diagram. So there was an it was an intent to cover that up. And why would they cover it up? And it all goes back to Billy Shelley being responsible for killing the power of the building and then turning it back on, which slam dunk Bill Shelley was in on this. I mean, that's that's the conclusion that one must draw. So um let me see. I got a I have question a in the chat if you want to take it real quick. Uh, yeah. I got something from Iron Heel. It's, it's a question about the limo, I believe. Uh, when did it become six in a car versus four? The, the vehicle is a stretch with a driver as well. And that mean anything to you? No, it's always, it's always six. It has the front row of seats, it has the middle row of seats, and then it has the rear row of seats, which are elevated about six inches. So, right. uh, yeah, I've never seen it referred to as having four seats. Right on. So yeah, that whole incident uh, to me is, is super important because the Texas School Book Depository was a CIA front. Uh, William Shelley and all the guys who worked there were certain they were definitely OSS. And you know, the, the CIA needs people to do menial jobs, right? Like pack textbooks that they print to send to schools. And so that's where these guys come in, right? These guys are not super duper spies, but even the CIA needs people to mop the floor, right? And so that's what happened there. Uh, all right, so the next clip, and it'll be the final clip that I have, talks about the fair play for Cuba committee. All right, so how Oswald was a communist. <laughs> Dang communists. During the 1975 Church Committee investigation of U.S. intelligence activities, committee member Richard Schweiker remarked about Oswald that everywhere you looked with him, there are fingerprints of intelligence. Many people said he was a forthright, uh, upstanding American as a young person, and yet uh, later depicted him as a Castro-loving, Cuban-loving, Russian-loving person. In the spring of 1963, Oswald started handing out pamphlets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, a pro-Castro, pro-Cuban revolution group that was popular on college campuses. And some of them he stamped 544 Camp Street, which was an office in downtown uh, New Orleans, near where the CIA's offices were, right across the street, in fact. It was also the home of the Cuban Revolutionary Council, which was the leading anti-Castro group. Why would a pro-Castro activist put his headquarters in the same headquarters as the leading anti-Castro group in the country? Because he was a provocateur. This gets back to being an agent or double agent because he played both roles. Here was Oswald, who had two associations. One, he had a group of anti-Castro Cubans. At the same time, he was handing out leaflets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, with the other side of the fence. So the two groups that had the most motivation uh, to assassinate the president, he was dealing with. And not surprisingly, many of these groups were known and in some case supported by the U.S. government. Yes, of course, they were supported by the U.S. government because the entire anti-Castro Cuban thing was a front. Uh, allegedly, they were trying to raise money uh, to overthrow Castro. They were trying to get guns and weapons to send down to Cuba so they could have the people's uprising. None of that ever happened. And why did none of that ever happen? Because none of those arms or money made it to the anti-Castro Cubans. All those entities um, like... Um, 
uh, Friends of Democratic Cuba, uh, which was run by Sergio Arcachis Smith, who was the shooter on the roof of the depository. These were CIA fronts that were used to do nothing more than gather and launder money, period. They were nonprofits. Uh, and so, yeah. But the bottom line is the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was a CIA front. Um, and we know this for fact because the guys who started it, uh, Richard Gibson and Robert Tabor, they were both outed as spies after the assassination, a couple years after the assassination, but still they were outed nonetheless. Uh, the story is that they didn't become CIA agents until after uh, the, like until 1965, but that's complete bullshit. I think everybody can recognize that. Um, in 2005, Richard Gibson got out in an article was published in Newsweek. And it says here, um, when he left CBS, uh, Gibson took over running the Fair Play for Cuba committee. It says he took it over, but his name is on the founding documents. All right. So when he left CBS, he took over running the Fair Play for Cuba committee and it grew rapidly on college campuses. He resisted subpoenas from state investigators seeking to discredit the group and urge civil rights leaders to support the Cuban cause. While the newly released CIA files don't include operational details, Gibson seems to have been a prolific spy. One CIA memo asserts that in 1977, his file contained more than 400 documents. Okay, so the entire story of the Fair Play for Cuba committee is a joke. It was a CIA front. Oswald was obviously working with the CIA uh, and these anti-Castro guys. But was he really? Well, I'm not I too mean, sure with that the information that. you've provided in the previous ones. We, I don't even think we really know who or what Oswald really is, or even if he was uh, close to the construct that they wanted us to think he was. Correct. A hundred percent. You nailed it. Um, honestly, I'm starting to think that if we don't have him on film or a picture of him doing something, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He definitely did not work at the book depository. No chance. You're not going to let your patsy wander around the fucking building while you're setting him up for the assassination. I mean, it's just so ridiculous that people have never No, I'm the first person on planet Earth to come to this conclusion. And I get laughed at for it by JFK researchers. But they're just so fucking narrow minded. They don't understand tradecraft or spycraft or that every person who interacted with Oswald was CIA. Right. Uh, and then when you look at how we got the job at the book depository, you know, it went through Linnie Mae Randall, who was Buell Frazier's sister. Buell Frazier had been seen driving Oswald to the rifle range. But like I said in previous presentations, it was William Seymour at the rifle range. It certainly was not Oswald at the rifle range. So you have this like den of spies in the book depository. Um, and so, yeah, you're not going to let him wander the fucking building at will while you're funneling assassins in and out of the building attempting to set him up. It's just not going to happen, right? Um, then when you look into like Robert Tabor, Robert Tabor was definitely outed as CIA sometime in the 1970s. Um, I have a news article that actually mentions that. But when you go into his background, I mean, he, the guy wrote a book on guerrilla warfare. I mean, come on. He's supposed to be just a reporter for CBS. It's entirely ridiculous. And then this is one of the more recent discoveries that I've made, thanks to Harold Weisberg. And this is in regards to the flyers that he was seen handing out on the street corner. Okay. So I'm going to read this quote because uh, uh, basically Jones printing is where those flyers were printed. And Harold Weisberg realized that Garrison never followed up on this lead. So he went and talked to Jones himself. And he says, there were about a hundred pictures, many mugshots of men from coast to coast, most having no connection of any kind with the assassination or its investigations. Without any reluctance, Jones looked at all those pictures. From them, he selected four, all of them the same man who looked a little different in some and radically different in one. In it, he had a full and luxurious beard. Jones was firm in his identification in picking that one man and in rejecting all others, including several of Oswald, one of which was the New Orleans mugshot of his August 1963 arrest there. I thanked Jones. I did not tell him whose picture he had selected and insisted were pictures of the man who picked the Oswald uh, who picked the Oswald handbill print job up. He had selected pictures of a man who had served briefly in the Marines with Oswald, Kerry Thornley, him alone. And when you look at a picture of Kerry Thornley, not identical to Oswald, but close enough to where everywhere this guy went, he was mistaken for Oswald. He was thin, you know, five foot nine. He had he weighed about 150 pounds. He had light brown hair, receding hairline. And this is the man who shot J.D. Tippett, where he, again, is mistaken for Oswald. So, so the whole story about Fair Play for Cuba Committee, the whole story about uh, Oswald picking up the flyers and distributing them on the street corner, I'm starting to even think that Oswald didn't even hang out with Garrison, not Garrison, with um, uh, Guy Bannister or any of the guys who were involved at 544 Camp Street. I think that Oswald was 100% managed, handled, kept out of Dallas at relevant times, kept out of 
New Orleans at relevant times. And on the day of the assassination, um, I, I place him the night before out in Fort Worth, uh, where he stayed with uh, Ruth Payne and Marina. My hypothesis is that he hung out there all day long until he was finally driven to the Texas theater at uh, about one o'clock by a guy named Daryl Beauclick. And so the reason I named Daryl Beauclick as having been the taxi driver who drove him there is because in the Dallas police documents, the day of the assassination, they had already identified Beauclick as a man who had given Oswald a ride, um, but they're talking about having given him a ride in Fort Worth, but he doesn't appear anywhere else in any of the documents or literature. And then when I come to figure out who Daryl Beauclick is, his real name is Delany Beauclick, and it turns out he died in a mysterious plane crash in 1966, right? So my how, how I'm kind of piecing, this one's kind of loose. I need a little more data, but it seems as though Oswald stayed the night at, the, at, Payne's house, at the Ruth Payne's house. And then the next morning, uh, probably sometime around 1230, called a cab. Daryl Beauclick picks him up, drops him off at the theater where he enters the Texas theater at approximately 106, which is the exact moment that J.D. Tippett was getting shot by Carrie Thornley. So that is what I have today to share. Back to Oliver Stone. Um, if I can figure this stuff out, but yet Oliver Stone with his dozens of researchers can't figure this stuff out. It is not by accident. It's not because they're stupid. It's intentional because he's a propagandist. And so that and, is why I don't give him any credit uh, for anything because he took money from the damn Israelis to make his movies and he left out anything that would ever possibly implicate them. He mentions Guy Bannister. He doesn't mention Guy Bannister's relationship with the ADL or that Guy Bannister had, uh, was directly connected to Schlumberger Corporation, uh, which is where David Ferry and Gordon Novell and Sergio Arcacha Smith, they had robbed the bunker in Homa. You and I went to that bunker in Homa yeah, and took pictures yeah. of it. Yeah, so um, that bunker was robbed in uh, 1961 or late 61. I forget the exact date. It might have been 62, but it was long before the assassination, and that was done at the behest of the CIA. Those weapons were allegedly going to the anti-Castro Cubans, but they weren't. They were sold to a company in Virginia called Interarmco, and Interarmco was uh, an agent uh, for a guy named Samuel Cummings, who was a longtime CIA agent and connected directly to Permindex, the company that basically was the Mossad Oversight Board, which probably gave the go-ahead or worked out the logistics for the assassination. So yeah, um, whenever I watch JFK documentaries, I'm just I get so disappointed. I mean, honestly, it took me over three years before I realized that Oswald was a was a figment of people's imagination. And it just kind of dawned on me because I was going through the statements of the people in the book depository. And when I realized half the people in the book depository never saw Oswald ever till they saw him on television and about a quarter of the people in that building never saw him there that day. Right. So he definitely wasn't there that day. I don't believe he ever worked there. If he did, it was probably used as a point of contact. You know, he might've gone there to meet with a handler or something, but I don't know. That doesn't even make sense. Why would you have him go there at all? Uh, when he's arrested, he's asked, uh, were you in that building? This is the exact question. Were you in that building? And they don't specify what building. And his response is, obviously, if I work in that building. That's what he said. Obviously, if I work in that building. But he never says yes, right? He says, obviously, if I work in that building. But he doesn't work in that building. And it's not obvious. So, yeah. Um, Oswald was put together like, uh, you know, he was, he was completely manufactured. The whole communist persona manufactured. And Oliver Stone has done nothing but help perpetuate myths. He'll give you a little bit of good information saying that, yeah, there was a conspiracy, but he'll never connect the dots back to the people that it needs to be connected to. So very frustrating. Well, man, great job with this. Um, let everyone know about supportfkn.com and what they can get on there and updates for your book. Yeah, so the book, I have been crunching on this thing. I've got six chapters done. I'm halfway through my chapter on what I call the mercenaries which covers Lauren Hall, Lawrence Howard, and William Seymour, who were, their job was to set up Oswald all over the place. William Seymour is doing stuff at the gun range and in the book depository. And it's all said to have been Oswald, but it clearly was not. So I'm working on that chapter now. You know, it's challenging for me because I have three chapters where I discuss things that Oswald allegedly did. I have a chapter on Lee Harvey Oswald. I have a chapter on these guys, the mercenaries, and I'll have another chapter on Carrie Thornley. And I'm dividing up between those three chapters, everything that Oswald is attributed to have done. 
And I'm going through why he didn't do any of them, right? So it, the challenging part is, well, do I put this one in this chapter or do I put this part in this chapter? And then I have a bunch of incidents where I'm not sure if it was Carrie Thornley or William Seymour impersonating Oswald. So I'm not really sure where to put those. So it's it's not so much a matter of uh, not getting the chapters done. It's a matter of doing it right and making sure the information is presented in a very legible way. So when people read through it, it makes sense instead of feeling like I'm jumping around, you know? Um, but that chapter will be done this week. And then I'll start the chapter on Carrie Thornley. And uh, if you want to get an insight into my book, if you want to communicate with me directly, I have a JFK supporter chat only. Anyone who makes a donation through uh, supportfkn.com, which is just buy me a coffee slash forbidden. Anyone who makes a donation there, you will get access to the chat room. You'll get access to a lot of my sources. I'm posting a lot of my source material there so people can read through it themselves. And so, yeah, anybody who really cares about the Kennedy assassination really wants to understand what happened. You know, you can get it. You can get into the chat for as little as five bucks. Um, but any donation would be appreciated. Once the book is done, I figure it'll be done by July. It'll be fully edited and ready to go sometime in August. And I'm hoping to have it published in September. Um, the actual publishing part is going to be expensive. Just to get it on Amazon costs about 500 bucks. Uh, plus, I'll have a couple hundred bucks in fees and plus some services if I have people do my graphics and all that stuff for me. So it's probably going to cost about $1,000 to actually get the book just published. And so, yeah, any help that you can give us would be phenomenal. And uh, yeah, so make a donation through supportfkm.com and you'll get access to all this stuff. And uh, that any donation through support FKN also goes to help uh, funding production of the Forbidden Documentary, which we're talking about how documentaries suck these days. This one will not suck. This is going to be an amazing documentary, and uh, we're very much looking forward to getting production going on that. So, Corey, thank you. This is fantastic. We're going to be bringing you more updates, of course, as we go along. Uh, and uh, we will be actually talking again tomorrow. So we'll see you then.